Section 5 of The Plain Speaker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Plain Speaker. Opinions on Books, Men, and Things by William Hazlitt. Section 5. On the Same Subject Continued. This was the case formerly at Lamb's, where we used to have many lively skirmishes at their Thursday evening parties. I doubt whether the small coal man's musical parties could exceed them. Oh, for the pen of John Buncle, to consecrate a petite souvenir to their memory. There was Lamb himself, the most delightful, the most provoking, the most witty and sensible of men. He always made the best pun and the best remark in the course of the evening. His serious conversation, like his serious writing, is his best. No one ever stammered out such fine, piquant, deep, eloquent things in half a dozen sentences as he does. His jests scald like tears, and he probes a question with a play upon words. What a keen, laughing, hair-brained vein of home-felt truth! What choice venom! How often did we cut into the haunch of letters while we discussed the haunch of mutton on the table? How we skimmed the cream of criticism? How we got into the heart of controversy? How we picked out the marrow of authors? And, in our flowing cups, many a good name, and true, was freshly remembered. Ecolect, the most sage and critical reader, that in all this I was but a guest. Need I go over the names? They were but the old everlasting set. Milton and Shakespeare, Pope and Dryden, Steele and Addison, Swift and Gay, Fielding, Smollett, Stern, Eichardson, Hogarth's Prince, Claude's Landscapes, and the cartoons at Hampton Court, and all those things that, having once been, must ever be. The Scotch novels, had not then been heard of, so we said nothing about them. In general, we were hard upon the moderns. The author of The Rambler was only tolerated in Boswell's life of him, and it was as much as anyone could do to edge in a word for Junius. Lanib could not hear Gil Bias. This was a fault. I remember the greatest triumph I ever had was in persuading him, after some years' difficulty, that Fielderfig was better than Smollett. On one occasion he was making out a list of persons famous in history that one would wish to see again, at the head of whom were Pontius Pilate, Sir Thomas Brown, and Dr. Faustus, but we blackballed most of his list. But with what a gusto would he describe his favorite authors, Donne, or Sir Philip Sidney, and call their most crabbed passages delicious. He tried them on his palate as epicure tastes olive, and his observations had a smack in them, like a roughness on the tongue. With what discrimination he hinted a defect in what he admired most, as in saying that the display of the sumptuous banquet in Paradise Regained was not in true keeping, as the simplest fare was all that was necessary to tempt the extremity of hunger, and stating 
that Adam and Eve in Paradise Lost were too much like married people. He has furnished many a text to Coleridge to preach upon, and there was no fuss or cant about him, nor were his sweets or his sours ever diluted with one particle of affection. I cannot say that the party at Lamb's were all of one description. There were honorary members, lay brothers. Wit and good fellowship was the motto inscribed over the door when a stranger came in. It was not asked, has he written anything? We were above that pedantry, but we waited to see what he could do. If he could take a hand at piquette, he was welcome to sit down. If a person liked anything, if he took snuff heartily, it was insufficient. He would understand by analogy the pungency of other things besides Irish blackguard or Scottish rapee. A character was good anywhere in a room or on paper, but we abhorred insipidity, affection, and fine gentlemen. There was one of our party, who never failed to mark, two for his knob at cribbage, and he was thought no mean person. This was Ned Phillips, and a better fellow in his way breathes not. There was, who asserted, some incredible matter-of-fact as likely a paradox, and settled all the controversies by an ipse dictat, a fiat of his will, hammering out many a hard theory on the anvil of his brain, the Baron Munchausen of politics and practical philosophy. There was Captain Burney, who had you at an advantage by never understanding you. There was Jem White, the author of Falstaff's letters, who the other day left this dull world to go in search of more kindred spirits, turning like the latter end of a lover's lute. There was Ayrton, who sometimes dropped in, the wheel honeycomb of our set with Mrs. Ailes, who, being of a quiet turn, loved to hear a noisy debate. An utterly uninformed person might have supposed this a scene of vulgar confusion and uproar, while the most critical question was pending, while the most difficult problem in philosophy was solving, Phillips cried out, That's game! And Martin Burney muttered a quotation over the last remains of a veal pie at a side table. Once and once only, the literary interest overcame the general. For Coleridge was riding the high German horse, and demonstrating the categories of the transcendental philosophy to the author of The Road to Ruin, who insisted on his knowledge of German, and German metaphysics, having read the critique of pure reason in the original, My dear Holcroft, said Coleridge, in a tone of infinitely provoking conciliation, you really put me in mind of a sweet, pretty German girl, about fifteen, that I met with in the Hartz Forest in Germany, and who one day, as I was reading The Limits of the Knowable and the Unknowable, the profoundest of all his works, with great attention, came behind my chair, and leaning over, said, What you read, Kant? Why, I that am a German board don't understand him. This was too much to bear, and Holcroft, starting up, called Tut in no measured tone. Mr. Coleridge, you are the most eloquent man I ever met with, and the most troublesome with your eloquence. Phillips held the cribbage peg 
that was to mark him game, suspended in his hand, and the whist-table was silent for a moment. I saw Holcroft downstairs, and, on coming to the landing-place at Mitre Court, he stopped me to observe that he thought Mr. Coleridge a very clever man with a great command of language, but that he feared he did not always affix very precise ideas to the words he used. After he was gone we had our laugh out, and went on with the argument on the nature of Eason, the imagination, and the will. I wish I could find a publisher for it. It would make a supplement to the Biographia Literaria, in a volume and a half octavo. Those days are over. An event, the name of which I wish never to mention, broke up our party like a bombshell thrown into the room, and now we seldom meet like angels' visits, short and far between. There is no longer the same set of persons, nor of associations. Lamb does not live where he did. By shifting his abode, his notions seem less fixed. He does not wear his old snuff-colored coat and breeches. It looks like an alteration in his style. An author and a wit should have a separate costume, a particular cloth. He should present something positive and singular to the mind, like Mr. Deuce of the museum. Our faith in the religion of letters will not bear to be taken to pieces and put together again by caprice or accident. Leigh Hunt goes there sometimes. He has a Venus spirit about him, and a tropical blood in his veins, but Lie is better at his own table. He has a great flow of pleasantry and delightful animal spirits, but his hits do not tell like lambs. You cannot repeat them the next day. He requires not only to be appreciated, but to have a select circle of admirers and devotees, to feel himself quite at home. He sits at the head of a party with great gaiety and grace, has an elegant manner and turn of features, is never at a loss aliquando sufflaminatus erat, has a continual sportive sallies of wit or fancy, tells a story capitally, mimics an actor or an acquaintance to admiration, laughs with great glee and good humor at his own and other people's jokes, understands the point of equivoque or an observation immediately, has a taste and knowledge of books, of music, of medals, manages an argument adroitly, is genteel and gallant and has a set of by-phrases and quaint allusions always at hand to produce a laugh. If he has a fault, it is that he does not listen so well as he speaks, is impatient of interruption, and is fond of being looked up to without considering by whom. I believe, however, he has pretty well seen the folly of this neither in his ready display of personal accomplishment and variety of resources and advantage to his writing, they sometimes present a desultory and slipshod appearance, owing to this very circumstance. The same things that tell, perhaps, best to a private circle round the fireside are not always intelligible to the public, nor does he take pains to make them so. He is too confident and secure of his audience, 
that which may be entertaining enough with the assistance of a certain liveliness of manner may read very flat on paper because it is abstracted from all the circumstances that had set it off to advantage a writer should recollect that he has only to trust to the immediate impression of the words like a musician who sings without the accompaniment of an instrument there is nothing to help out or slubber over the defects of the voice in the one case nor of the style in the other the reader may if he pleases get a very good idea of leigh hunt's conversation from a very agreeable paper he has lately published called the indicator than which nothing can be more happily conceived or executed the art of conversation is the art of hearing as well as of being heard authors in general are not good listeners some of the best talkers are on this account the worst company and some who are very indifferent but very great talkers are as bad it is sometimes wonderful to see how a person who has been entertaining or tiring a company by the hour together drops his countenance as if he had been shot or had been seized with a sudden lockjaw the moment anyone interposes a single observation the best converser i know is however the best listener i mean mr northcote the painter painters by their profession are not bound to shine in conversation they shine the more he lends his ear to an observation as if you had brought him a piece of news and enters into it with as much avidity and earnestness as if it interested himself personally if he repeats an old remark or story it is with the same freshness and point as for the first time it always arises out of the occasion and has the stamp of originality there is no parroting of himself his look is a continual ever varying history piece of what passes in his mind his face is a book there need no marks of interjection or interrogation to what he says his manner is quite picturesque there is an excess of character and naivete that never tires his thoughts bubble up and sparkle like beads on old wine the fund of anecdote the collection of curious particulars is enough to set any common retailer of jests that dines out every day but these are not strung together like a row of galley slaves but are always introduced to illustrate some argument or to bring out some fine distinction of character the mix of spleen adds to the sharpness of the point like poisoned arrows mr northcote enlarges with enthusiasm on the old painters and tells good things of the new the only thing he ever vexed me in was his liking in the catalogue raisonne i had almost as soon hear him talk of titian's pictures which he does with tears in his eyes and looking just like them as see the originals and i had rather hear him talk of sir joshua's than see them he is the last of that school who knew goldsmith and johnson how finely he describes pope his elegance of mind his figure his character were not unlike his own he does not resemble a modern englishman but puts one in mind of a roman cardinal 
or a Spanish inquisitor. I never ate or drank with Mr. Northcote, but I have lived on his conversation with undiminished relish ever since I can remember, and when I leave it, I come out into the street with my feelings lighter and more ethereal than I have at any other time. One of his tete-a-tetes would at any time make an essay, but he cannot write himself because he loses himself in the connecting passages, is fearful of the effect, and wants the habit of bringing his ideas into focus or view. A lens is necessary to collect the diverging rays, the refracted and the broken angular lights of conversation on paper. Contradiction is half the battle in talking, the being startled by what others say, and having to answer on the spot. You have to defend yourself, paragraph by paragraph, parentheses within parentheses. Perhaps it might be supposed that a person who excels in conversation and cannot write would better succeed in dialogue. But the stimulus, the immediate irritation, would be wanting, and the work would read flatter than ever, from not having the very thing it pretended to have. Lively sallies and connected discourse are very different things. There are many persons of that impatient and restless turn of mind that they cannot wait a moment for a conclusion or follow up the thread of any argument. In the hurry of conversation, their ideas are somehow huddled into sense, but in the intervals of thought leave a great gap between. Montesquieu said he often lost an idea before he could find words for it, Yet he dictated, by way of saving time, to an amanuensis. This last is, in my opinion, a vile method, a solecism in authorship. Home Took, among other paradoxes, used to maintain that no one could write in good style who was not in the habit of talking and hearing the sound of his own voice. He might as well have said that no one could relish a good style without reading it aloud, as we find common people do to assist their apprehension. But there is a method of trying periods on the ear, or weighing them with the scales of the breath, without any articulate sound. Authors, as they write, may be said to hear a sound so fine, there's nothing lives twixt it and silence. Even musicians generally compose in their heads. I agree that no style is good that is not fit to be spoken or read aloud with effect. This holds true not only of emphasis and cadence, but also with regard to natural idiom and colloquial freedom. Stern's was in this respect the best style that ever was written. You fancy that you hear the people talking. For a contrary reason, no college man writes a good style, or understands it when written. Fine writing is with him all verbiage and monotony, a translation into classical centos or hexameter lines. That which I have just mentioned is among many instances that I could give of ingenious absurdities advanced by Mr. Took in the heat and pride of controversy. A person who knew him well, and greatly admired his talents, said of him that he never, to his recollection, heard him defend an opinion which he thought right, or 
in which he believed to be himself sincere. He indeed provoked his antagonists into the toils by the very extravagance of his assertions, and the teasing sophistry which he rendered them plausible. His temper was prompter to his skill. He had the manners of a man of the world, with great scholastic resources. He flung everyone else off guard, and was himself immovable. I never knew anyone who did not admit his superiority in this kind of warfare. He put a full stop to one of Coleridge's long-winded prefatory apologies for his youth and inexperience by saying abruptly, Speak up, young man! and at another time silenced a learned professor by desiring an explanation of a word which the other frequently used, and which, he said, he had been many years trying to get at the meaning of. The copulative is. He was the best intellectual fencer of his day. He made strange havoc of Fuseli's fantastic hieroglyphics, violent humors, and oddity of dialect. Curran, who was sometimes of the same party, was lively and animated in convivial conversation, but dull in argument, nay, adverse to anything like reasoning or serious observation, and had the worst taste I ever knew. His favorite critical topics were to abuse Milton's Paradise Lost and Romeo and Juliet, Indeed, he confessed a want of sufficient acquaintance with books when he found himself in literary society in London. He and Sheridan once dined at John Kimball's with Mrs. Inchbald and Mary Wollstonecroft, when the discourse almost wholly turned on love. From noon to dewy eve, a summer's day. What a subject! What speakers and what hearers! What would I not give to have been there? had I not learned it all from the bright eyes of Amaryllis, and may one day make a table talk of it. Peter Pindar was rich in anecdote and grotesque humor, and profound in technical knowledge both of music, poetry, and painting. But he was gross and overbearing. Wordsworth sometimes talks like a man inspired on subjects of poetry, his own out of the question. Coleridge, well, on every subject, and Godwin on none. To finish this subject, Mrs. Montague's conversation is as fine-cut as her features, and I like to sit in the room with that sort of coronet face. What she says leaves a flavor, like fine green tea. Hunt's is like champagne, and Northcote's like anchovy sandwiches. Hayden's is like a game at trap-ball, lambs like snapdragon, and my own, if I do not mistake the matter, is not very much like a game of nine-pins. One source of the conversation of authors is the character of other authors, and on that they are rich indeed. What things they say! What stories they tell of one another! More particularly of their friends! If I durst only give some of these confidential communications, the reader may think the foregoing a specimen of them, but indeed he is mistaken. I do not know of any greater impertinence than for an obscure individual to set about pumping a character of celebrity. Bring him to me, 
said a Dr. Trochan, speaking of Rousseau, that I may see whether he has anything in him. Before you can take measure of the capacity of others, you ought to be sure that they have not taken measure of yours. They may think you a spy on them, and may not like their company. If you really want to know whether another person can talk well, begin by saying a good thing yourself, and you will have a right to look for a rejoinder. The best tennis players, says Sir Fopling Flutter, make the best matches, for wit is like a rest, held up at tennis which men do the best with the best players. We hear it often said of a great author or a great actress that they are very stupid people in private, but he was a fool that said so. Tell me your company, and I'll tell you your manners. In conversation, as in other things, the action and reaction should bear a certain proportion to each other. Authors may, in some sense, be looked upon as foreigners, who are not naturalized even in their native soil. Lamb once came down into the country to see us. He was like the most capricious poet Ovid among the Goths. The country people thought him an oddity, and did not understand his jokes. It would be strange if they had, for he did not make any while he stayed. But when we crossed the country to Oxford, then he spoke a little. He and the old colleges were hail-fellow well met, and in the quadrangles he walked gowned. There is a character of a gentleman. So there is a character of a scholar, which is no less easily recognized. The one has an air of books about him, as the other has of good breeding. The one wears his thoughts, as the other does his clothes, gracefully. And even if they are a little old-fashioned, they are not ridiculous. They have had their day. The gentleman shows by his manner that he has been used to respect from others, the scholar that he lays claim to self-respect and to a certain independence of opinion. The one has been accustomed to the best company. The other has passed his time in cultivating an intimacy with the best authors. There is nothing forward or vulgar in the behavior of the one, nothing shrewd or petulant in the observations of the other. As if he should astonish the bystanders, or was astonished himself at his own discoveries. Good taste and good sense, like common politeness, are, or are supposed to be, matters of course. One is distinguished by an appearance of marked attention to every one present. The other manifests an habitual air of abstraction and absence of mind. The one is not an upstart with all the self-important airs of the founder of his own fortune, nor the other a self-taught man, with the repulsive self-sufficiency which arises from an ignorance of what hundreds have known before him. We must excuse, perhaps, a little conscious family pride in the one, and a little harmless pedantry in the other. As there is a class of the first character which sinks into the mere gentleman, that is, which has nothing but this sense of respectability and propriety to support it, so the character of a scholar not unfrequently dwindles down into the shadow of a shade, till nothing is left of it but the mere bookworm. 
there is often something amiable as well as enviable in the last character i know one such instance at least the person i mean has an admiration for learning if he is only dazzled by its light he lives among old authors if he does not enter much into their spirit he handles the covers and turns over the pages and is familiar with the names and dates he is busy and self-involved he hangs like a film and cobweb upon letters or is like the dust upon the outside of knowledge which should not be rudely brushed aside he follows learning as its shadow but as such he is respectable he browses on the husk and leaves of books as the young fawn browses on the bark and leaves of trees such a one lives all his life in a dream of learning and has never once had his sleeps broken by a real sense of things he believes implicitly in genius truth virtue liberty because he finds the names of these things in books he thinks that love and friendship are the finest things imaginable both in practice and theory the legend of good woman to him is no fiction when he steals from the twilight of his cell the scene breaks upon him like an illuminated missile and all the people he sees are but so many figures in a camera obscura he reads the world like a favorite volume only to find beauties in it or like an edition of some old work which he is repairing for the press only to make emendations in it and correct the errors that have inadvertently slipped in he and his dog trey are much the same honest simple-hearted faithful and affectionate creatures if trey could but read his mind cannot take the impression of vice but the gentleness of his nature turns gall to milk he would not hurt a fly he draws the picture of mankind from the guileless simplicity of his own heart and when he dies his spirit will take its smiling leave without having ever had an ill thought of others or the consciousness of one in itself end of section 5 recording by kirby bonds